Well, if you uh, have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4. You might be surprised that we're going to the book of Galatians for a Christmas text, but uh, as you'll see, Paul reminds us of some wonderful truths in the coming of Christ, the Lord giving a baby who is born under the law. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Father, I ask that You would use Your Word now to draw us to Your wonderful grace that shines so clearly in the giving of Christ to us. Lord, I pray that You would give us practical wisdom for our lives as we leave here today. God, I pray that as we go through this season we call Christmas, Lord, that right thoughts would come to our minds, that our hearts would be joyous for reasons that are unsearchable to us beyond our comprehension, the grace given to us when You sent Christ. Lord, I pray You would help us this morning. Lord, I pray for the person who's maybe here today and has never truly found their joy in You, never truly understood what it means that God sent His Son. Lord, I pray that wisdom enlightening of the eyes would happen as Your Holy Spirit takes Your Word and applies it to hearts. Lord, I pray that You would be pleased to draw all of our hearts to Christ this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Christmas was probably one of the most odd Christmases that I've ever been a part of. And Laura and I found ourselves saying, it just doesn't seem like Christmas this year. And the reason was, was that Laura uh, gave birth to Eden on December 24th, C-section. So we spent Christmas in the hospital. And apart from our families, for the most part, and also, 
Amy, I'm sure you can relate to this, because you guys spent Christmas in the hospital. Uh, as uh, Aaliyah was born on the 24th, and actually Eden was born on the 23rd. Uh, but we were both spending Christmas there. But the interesting thing I want you to think about, and as I was uh, thinking about this this week, is that we said it doesn't seem like Christmas. Why? Because we weren't around the people we're usually around at Christmas time. We weren't around our family. Things weren't the same with those around us. Which made me think, should, it, should that make Christmas feel any different? What does family and Christmas have to do with each other? Did it just so happen that at this holiday, families gather together or not? You see, Christmas in our culture is probably either good or bad based off family. If things are not good with family, or if your family isn't around, or if you've lost a loved one, we might say Christmas is a difficult time. But what's the attachment to family? Is there anything spiritual at all about celebrating the birth of Christ with family? Jesus was born. If you asked most people what's Christmas about, they'll get the right answer. Maybe not everyone in our culture, but Christians will say, well, Jesus was born. And if we were to say, well, so what? What would they say? Well, He was born and He died on the cross for our sins. That's all true. And the coming of Christ. The main meaning of it is the reason for why He came. And the reason for why He came was not just to coo as a cute little baby in a manger so we can have nativities and have warm fluffies in our hearts, but He was born to die, to go to a cross. But that's not all. He was born for. When Christ went to the cross, what does that mean for us? You see, in the heart of every human being is the desire to be in a good family. This is why it's so hard to lead a gang member out of a gang. Because there's real community in a gang. There's real belonging. There's real family. It's the same with the gay and lesbian community. It's a real community with real people who gather together and support each other and hardwired in to the human heart no matter how cold we 
may think we've become, I don't need anyone else. My family's rejected me, but I'm okay at the heart of everyone. Every recluse that moved into the mountains is probably in the mountains because of broken relationships that have so hurt the heart of that individual. So, what are we supposed to think of as we drive around and we see Christmas lights and we hear Christmas carols and we see all the hubbub at this time of year? Well, I'm going to challenge you. This isn't the only thing to think through. But I want to challenge you to let Christmas be a reminder to you not to fall back into slavery. And I'm going to explain what I mean in a moment. But rather remain in your freedom as a son of God or daughter of God. That's what I want to unpack this morning as we look at Galatians. And as I was looking at this text, I realized some sermons, the bulk of it needs to be the context that makes the meaning fall out of the verses you're looking at. And I feel like this is one of those times. So I want to bring us into context of what's going on when Paul writes this letter to this church in Galatia. On Paul's first missionary journey, this church was probably established. And true believers started trusting Christ. But what happened after Paul left, enemies came into the church and started preaching another gospel. As we'll see in a moment, Paul says there is no other good news, but there was people whom people called Judaizers, people who accept Jesus as the Christ, but then say you need to live according to the law of Moses to be right with God. You need to live under the law still. And so he writes this letter with maybe more aggressive passion than any other letter he has ever written. And so if you have your Bibles, I just want you to turn to chapter 1. And we're just going to go in rapid fire. I just want to help you. We're going to kind of skim through Galatians here up to chapter 4. And my prayer is the meaning of the coming of Christ will be so rich when you see what Paul says. First look at Galatians 1.6. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Different good news. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But even 
if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. To hell with him, Paul says. If anyone preaches a different gospel, anathema, let him be accursed. Even if angels, well that, why, do, why is he talking about angels? I'm going to show you in a moment that it seems like the Judaizers were arguing that the law came to Moses. Moses the mediator with angels. We find this out from this text that the angels were somehow involved. And it seems like they're saying if the angels were involved, then the law is the most glorious thing. And people must Keep it. And Paul here is saying, I don't care if even an angel comes and preaches a different gospel to hell with that angel. I'm astonished how quickly you're leaving, he says. And then if you go to chapter 2, you find Paul defending his authority. They're not listening to Paul. They're listening to these other false teachers. So he's defending his authority that they ought to listen to this letter. And he reminds them that he even had to rebuke Peter because Peter was even being tempted to fall into the schemes of the Judaizers. Look at what he says in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he's speaking to Peter now, when these people came from James, so get the picture, Peter's eating with the Gentiles. But then all of a sudden, a crew comes in. Jews who are now following Christ. So you have a little, what we would call peer, peer pressure. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The Judaizers were saying the Gentiles need to be circumcised. And then in verse 13, he says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So here Paul confronts Peter to his face and says, why are you being a hypocrite to the good news? Why are you all of a sudden afraid of this group that is trying to bring legalism into the freedom that is given to them in Christ? And then we see this clear statement in verse 16 of chapter 2 that no one will be justified by the works of the law. What does justified mean? It means 
counted righteous, found not guilty, found as though you did not break the law. Here's what he says in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So the difference is between works. No one's found not guilty because they kept the law. Rather, it's by faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, he says, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And then he goes on to say, basically, if you want to live to God, if you want to live your life for God, you have to die to the law. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So there had to be a death to the law so that He could live to God. And then He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, I do not nullify the grace of God. And then here's his argument. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then he gets to chapter 3. So he says, if you want, if you want to be found righteous in the law, well then let's get rid of Christ. You're not being consistent. You can't have Christ and the law as your means of justification. Then he makes an experiential argument in the first six verses of chapter 3. He says, when did you receive the Spirit, Gentiles? Wasn't it before you knew anything about the law? But you heard Christ preach by me? You didn't know about circumcision. You heard Christ preach. The law written on your heart convicted you. He says, when did you receive the Spirit? If you receive the Spirit by faith, why are you now going to go to works? Why are you now going to go follow Sabbath days and circumcision and things like this? That's what verses 1-6 through are. And in order to understand what I'm saying, you got to understand the two main covenants that are being talked about. What covenant came before the law of Moses? What came first? Well, we could go all the way back to the garden and there's a promise that from the seed of the woman, the serpent's head is going to be crushed. And then connected with that is this Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, and here's how that covenant sounds. I'll read it. Verses 1-3. through three. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country 
and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll dishonor those who dishonor you are in those who him who dishonors you. I'll curse and in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham's seed in his offspring. All the nations of the world will be blessed. You see, Israel hasn't been singled out yet. We still have 400 years before Moses comes. But there's a promise to Abraham and to his seed that the Gentiles are going to be blessed through his offspring. And then in Genesis 15, verse Five after he gets is faithful to carry through with the sacrifice of Isaac and God stays his hand. We read in verse five, and he being the Lord brought him out and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted as righteous. As justified. How? By believing the promise of God. And here's what Paul's going to do. He's going to say, here's the promise. Then we have the law. And you're not understanding the purpose of the law. The law's purpose was not to give up on the Abrahamic covenant. On this promise. It wasn't to knock it down. And now the way of salvation is following the law. And so as he gets to Galatians 3.6, he makes the argument. Abraham wasn't justified by works, but by faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. And then you get to verse 10, and he says, the law doesn't justify, the law curses. Look at at verse 10 of chapter 3. For all who rely... It's a strong word on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? All the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. He's saying if you want to go with the Judaizers, well then keep the whole thing. Otherwise, you're under a curse. If you want to somehow meld the promise to the law, 
You're going to lose the promise. No one will be justified by keeping the law. And then he argues in verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit. How? Through faith. And then he uses this everyday argument in the way contracts were ratified and done in his day. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, he says, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Here's what he's saying. If God made a promise to Abraham... There's no law given after that promise that can annul that covenant. If there's an agreement and an inheritance promised and a blessing promised, no law that comes after can change that covenant. That's his argument. In verse 15, And then he says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. You can't have it both ways. If, it, if inheritance comes through the law, then get rid of the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Who is Abraham's offspring singular? It is Christ. Blessing and inheritance comes through who? How does it come? It comes through Christ. And the problem with the law, Paul argues, is that it's temporary for Israel. Look at what he says in verse 19. Why then the law? He can hear their objections. Was the law worthless? What do we do with the law then? Why then the law? What does he say? It was added because of transgressions. Now hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. What does it mean the law was added because of transgressions? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. You see, it's a temporary. The purpose of it is temporary. That's Paul's argument. Until the offspring of Abraham comes until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I think here's what he's saying. You think because 
God used angels. We don't really understand how, but we know from this text He did. When God gave the law to Moses, He's saying God worked through a mediator, Moses, and He worked through angels. And in comparison to the Abrahamic covenant, God, God to a man, gave a promise. And I think he's arguing, you think the law is more glorious and you're wrong. It has to go through a few mediators first. And then he says, makes the argument that the law convicted us of sin, but can never save us of sin. Look at verses 21. Or verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Someone could say, well, the law's bad then. You know, they could be saying, what are you doing? Are you getting rid of the law of Moses? Are you saying there's no use for it? He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. That's as strong as he can say it. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, and the Scripture there is talking about the law, but the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The purpose of the law is to bind up, to imprison everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the way he says it in Romans 5.20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see, when God gave the law, man was sinful before the law. But when God showed His holiness through the law and He gave it to Israel on paper right before them, sin increased in that they knew what God wanted them to do and they could not do it. They could not do it. And so the law of God showed the holiness of God to them. And when the holiness of God is shown to a people, it imprisons them in their sin and brings them to a hopeless state. And Paul says the purpose of the law is to get people to quit believing that they can do it in the heart of man is I can be good enough to be saved. It's the worst news in the world because no one can ever be good enough. By the works of the law, how many people will be justified? No one, Paul argues. These false teachers were bringing bad news to the church. To this church. And then... In verse 23, we see how the law prepares the way for Christ. Now before faith came, 
speaking of Christ. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Now, listen to that language. The law's purpose was to be a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. Now, in order to understand our text today, we're going to have to understand what Paul is talking about. What does it mean that the law, before Christ came, the law acted as a guardian for Israel and for the Gentiles who have the law written on their heart? Romans 2.15 says that even the Gentiles have the law of God written on their heart. They know what sin is. This was to be a guardian to imprison them up. It's like, uh, as we're going to see in a moment, what was common for both Jews and Gentiles in those days was that if you had children who were one day going to get your inheritance, they didn't get the inheritance when they were children. When they were little, they had to wait till the appointed time when it was handed over to them and they received, in a sense, the promise. But until that time, guardians were put over their children, both for Gentiles and Jews, to teach them, in a sense, to imprison them in the way they ought to live. Paul's going to argue in a moment, even though they're sons, they're slaves under the guardian. They haven't received the promise yet. They haven't graduated from high school. Every kid knows that prison or that school is prison. And it is. In the sense that if you get a bunch of children together, or kids, or young people, and all you do is teach them, and that doesn't produce something? Well, we're in the training days. They're not released yet to use what they've been given. They're still in training. I played football. In practice was prison. And the game was freedom. I got to use everything that I worked at when I had this harsh guardian, in a sense, over top teaching. No one would describe school as the reins are let loose. Just run wild. And so he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And then he says in verse 26, here's how he brings it to a culmination here, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Now we're getting family language. Through faith. 
For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are in Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Here's what he's saying. If you trust in Christ by faith, you're immersed in Abraham's offspring and anyone who believes is in the family of God. Whether it's a man or whether it's a woman. Whether it's a slave or whether it's a rich man. If you trust in Christ, you're in the family. Now we get to chapter 4. I hope all that work makes these truths fall out before us. Look at verse 1. Paul says, here's what I mean. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. The little four-year-old boy whose dad is a farmer probably is owner of that field over there, just not yet. As long as they're a child... They might as well be a slave because they're not free is what he's saying. He's no different than a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to the ABCs of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, see, here's the Christmas text. Just at the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was brought up in a Jewish family. Born under the law. Why? to redeem those who were under the law so that we may receive adoption as sons. One of the meanings of Christmas is that you were a slave to sin and under the law. And there was no hope for your life. But when the fullness of time has come, and God sent forth His Son. Now, when a person trusts by faith in the promised seed, you go from a slave to a son. From no inheritance to an inheritance. From slavery to freedom. And Paul's argument is this. So let me understand what you want to do, Galatian church. You heard the Gospel. You were given the Spirit, which is your mark that you're truly saved and sons of God. And you want to leave the family of God and go back under the harsh guardian and try to earn your way that way? See, it's a pretty powerful argument. 
Who wants to go back to school once you get to go out and start being fruitful with what you were raised with? You want to be set free. Why, he's asking, why go back into bondage? And then look how he connects the Spirit in verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Anyone who's a believer knows that he has a father, that he's in that family. The Holy Spirit testifies to his heart that he is a child of God as that child gives up on trying to earn their salvation and recognizes Christ is the only way. You see, Christ fulfilled the law. And now as Christians, is the law any good to us? Well, it's good to us not to put ourselves under it as a guardian over us. God is our Father. But now all of a sudden, when you don't have to keep the law, when you know you can't keep the law and you know Christ has kept it for you, now it displays God's holiness, God's goodness, God's righteousness. And all of a sudden, you come to the Ten Commandments and love them because your salvation is not based on if you keep them perfectly because the offspring of Abraham is the one who kept it perfectly. And then, here's how he finishes his argument. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to want be once more? And then he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid that I've labored in vain. Here's what he says. My heart is breaking as I'm seeing you trying to earn your salvation after you've been given Christ. Why go back to the slavery? I didn't leave myself much time for then. So rapid fire. The points in your notes. Remember your slavery. You see, if you coast into the Christmas season and someone asks you, you know, what is Christmas all about? One of the things you can talk about is everyone before Christ came was enslaved except for those who by faith were trusting in Abraham's seed that was yet to come. But when Christ came, it's as though you grow up and get to receive inheritance and be know you're in the children, you're children of Abraham, you're children of God. We see the fullness of it in Christ. And we will treat Christmas as a light thing 
if we take for granted the fact that we were enslaved in our sin to try to be good enough. Almost everyone in the world who is not saved, but who is religious, is trying to be good enough, in a sense, keep the law so that God will say, that's good enough, come in. But those who try to live by the law will be judged by the law. But those who live by faith in Christ are children in His family. Second, relish your freedom as sons. This is maybe, this is so applicable. You see, if you know who you are, if you know you're a child of God, and your identity is rock solid in who you are as a child of God, then you can give your life away and love others and not have to hear the praise of man. You know, Paul says don't use your freedom to uh, indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom for selfishness, but rather, you know, Paul's like, look at my life. I'm giving up my rights because I know who I am. The reason why Christians don't need to be materialistic is because we'll inherit the world in Christ. We're heirs of God. If you want to write these texts down and look them up, they're really good. Galatians 5.13, 1 Peter 2.16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 9.19. Third point, rely on the Spirit. God did not leave us alone. When Christ was raised up from the dead, He says, I'm going to send you My Spirit. And so He could, he could honestly say, I'll never leave you or forsake you. We're reminded that we're a part of the family of God. Even Christ is ever present with us in the Spirit of Christ. And fourth, rejoice in your adoption. What does it mean that we're children of God? What does it mean that God the Father loved us in the same way He loved the Son as Jesus said in His prayer in John 17? That should be enough to cause our mouth to drop. Here's why I love the good news of the Gospel. There's family for every broken person. There's adoption into something better than even uh, the family you're born into. Anyone should be able to come into this church and find community in Christ. Rejoice in your adoption. And to finish with, I just want to leave you with a story. Almost all of you have probably heard this story. You have your own version of it. Have you ever seen some, some good friends of ours? Some of the sweet, dearest people that Laura and I get to spend time with that live in Minnesota. They're, they adopted a little girl 
one of the sweetest little girls. She grew up, became a teenager, and began to rebel and get into drugs and alcohol and became pregnant, push the family away. Everyone from the outside is dying inside because it's like, look at this family you have. Look at this mom and dad. No, they're not perfect, but they love you. And they adopted you. They chose you. You just wanted to grab her and say, look at your family. But when we fall back into slavery, what do we do? We choose isolation, darkness. We let things be stolen from us. The thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. We begin to kill ourselves. We live under the curse. We live in fatherlessness. You just want to come to this girl and say, look at your life broken, walking away from your family. And the reality is, Monday morning, you know what I can do in my flesh? I can begin to walk back into slavery and believe that God loves me because I'm good enough. And I begin to choose to not live by faith, but live by Sam's righteousness. And Paul would be saying to me, Oh, foolish Sam! Don't you know you're adopted? Father, thank You so much for sending a baby born under the law the only one that could ever keep the law. Who could die in our place. Whose perfect life can be given to us freely as a gift when we trust in Him by faith and our life is transferred on Christ as He pays for our sins. It's the best news in the world. Lord, I pray no one would leave here trusting in man-made religion or in even secular, just be a good person. But we would all recognize that we need Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.